Hey creeps, I'm Taylor and this is TGI Crime Day. Hello and welcome to episode 15. Did anyone else feel like they had the weirdest week of their lives? Like, can someone tell me, was Mercury retrograding or something? I finally feel better today, like when I'm recording this, but man, if you guys also had a rough week, I'm so sorry. I'm here to make it better and worse because as you all know, this is a true crime podcast, so it's probably going to bum you out. But as you also know, for some reason, listening to true crime just is really soothing when you've had a bad week. So this week's case is one that I had actually never heard of somehow, which is unbelievable because it's crazy. When I was listening to My Favorite Murder um, a few weeks ago, Karen recommended the book Last Call by Elon Green, which is about the last call killer. I'd never heard of that case, so I did a quick Google, and there's hardly any info about it before the trial, and there's not even a Wikipedia page, which I think is kind of sad because this was a really big deal. So I listened to the audiobook, which was fantastically done, and I watched an episode of Mark of a Killer on Oxygen. I had to buy the stupid episode through Amazon because Oxygen doesn't just let you pay for their service, which drives me nuts. I would do it. Oxygen, give us, like, the option. We would give you our money. <laughs> so Mark of a Killer was really good, and I kind of want to get all of the episodes. It's kind of like a modern-day Forensic Files without all of, like, the really embarrassing reenactments. I also did watch an episode of Forensic Files about this case that was on YouTube, and it was full of all of the unnecessary embarrassing reenactments. So, I mean, it was still a great, great episode, but, you know, you know. So those were my main sources for this episode, and then I just kind of had to go down a rabbit hole googling everything I could think of to find articles online about this. Um, so let's get into it. To understand the true horrors of this case, it's important to note that in the early 90s, a lot of people didn't feel comfortable or safe being openly gay or transgender. Things had obviously come a long way from where they were at in the 50s, 60s, 70s, but it was still a very rough time for the LGBTQ community. That being said, I think that while things have improved a lot since the 90s to present day, we still have a very long way to go in the journey of acceptance and equality for the LGBTQ plus community, because unfortunately, old prejudices run very deep. Let's not forget, same-sex marriage was only made legal across all 50 states in 2015, which was basically yesterday, okay? And there are currently laws that are being put into place that are sending us back decades for LGBTQ rights. That's a rant for another time. Let's get back into the 1990s. In the book Last Call by Elon Green, he gives a really good overview of how things were for the gay community during this time. There was a major AIDS outbreak at the end of the 80s, and people unfortunately started calling it the gay plague, which makes me insane. Um, they believed that you could get it simply through touching someone with AIDS or, like, shaking their hand or breathing the same air, which is simply not true. The belief that AIDS could spread through breathing the same air or hugging someone with AIDS perpetuated the homophobia and further vilified the LGBTQ community. By 1983, as more studies were done, obviously we learned that it's only spread through specific contact with bodily fluids, but there were still a lot of people who were, and unfortunately are, prejudiced against people with AIDS. On one side of this were people pointing fingers and badmouthing the people truly suffering from this disease, and on the other side were the people who were actually being affected by it. There are so many quotes um, from people who were literally losing dozens of friends at this time and scared of losing more. It's heartbreaking, and again, I'm going to say this 20 times in this episode, I highly recommend you read Elon Green's book because um, he calls attention to all of these really important things that really shaped the U.S. and the whole world, but are often left out of history lessons because we don't like to talk about our problems, and we should be talking about them more. <laughs> um, in an absolutely iconic move from the late, great Princess Diana, these fears were brought down 
probably significantly because people adored her and what she was doing was what people wanted to do. So in 1987, Princess Diana publicly shook hands with an AIDS patient to prove that there was nothing to fear. And like I said, this helped to improve things, but there was still a very long way to go. There was violence against the gay communities, and many businesses that supported the gay community were even robbed or bombed. Um, Assaults and attacks of gay men were happening constantly, and there wasn't really much being done about it. It finally got to a point where people felt like it wasn't even worth reporting to the police because they knew that nothing would be done about it, which it makes me insane. (sighs) So, there was this big part of why men chose not to come out or be openly gay because they were in danger and literally feared for their lives. Alexander Leon said, quote, Queer people don't grow up as ourselves. We grew up playing a version of ourselves that sacrifices authenticity to minimize humiliation and prejudice. The massive task of our adult lives is to unpick which parts of ourselves are truly us and which parts we've created to protect us, end quote. So, when the bodies of four gay men were found brutally murdered in the early 90s, it's safe to assume that there could have been some prejudice against the victims, meaning that the killer would just go free and live life as he had been. In Elon Green's book, he said that he assumed that the reason the case went unsolved for years was because of that exact reason, but it seems like in this particular case, the police were actually very much on top of it and did their best to solve these murders, and for the most part treated it the same way that they would for any other case, which is amazing. On July 10th, 1992, two roadway workers in Burlington County, New Jersey, were emptying garbage bins at the rest stops along Route 71. Their day was going the same as it usually did until they got to one rest stop where they saw that one of the garbage cans had multiple trash bags inside and around it. When the workers went to pick up one of the bags, they realized that it was much heavier than their usual trash. And they probably were like, well, that's none of my business, and threw the bags into the back of their small yellow dump truck and took them to the maintenance yard as usual. This was when one of them realized that there was a white trash bag that had felt really heavy that had some suspicious red marks on it. Because these dudes were very brave and probably didn't expect to find anything horrifying inside, they let their curiosity get the best of them and opened the bag. Inside this trash bag, they found a human head. The police state were called and they started looking into other bags that were picked up from that same rest stop and in the other trash bags, detectives found an upper torso and two arms, um, each in their own bags. Meanwhile, at a rest stop 15 miles away, another high worker emptying the garbage bins there ran into a similarly horrendous situation. They had found the lower torso and two legs each in their own bags. These bags were taken to the state medical examiner's office in Newark, New Jersey, and an autopsy showed that there had been multiple stab wounds to the torso. They also discovered that the body had been carefully disarticulated, meaning that no bones had been cut and every cut was very clean and precise, which right away was a red flag that whoever did this had to have had a very good understanding of human anatomy and able to be able to take the body apart in that way. Um, Each of the body parts had been drained of blood, washed, double-bagged, and double-knotted. Seems like a weird detail to mention, but keep it in your back pocket for later because it's going to come up again. The senior detective in this case was shocked by this and said that in all his years on the force, he had never seen anything like it. Because of the precision and um, careful planning it would take to do something like this, they were quickly worried because there was no way this was the first time this attacker had done this, and it was probably not the last time they were going to do it. When a toxicology screen was done, they found that the victim's blood alcohol level was 0.230%, which is well above the legal limit. Inside the garbage bags, detectives also found a briefcase, a pair of Bostonian shoes, and a wallet with an ID. The body was Thomas Mulcahy, and Thomas was 57 years old. He lived with his wife, Margaret, in Sudbury, Massachusetts. They had four children together, and Thomas worked as a technology salesman for a computer company. And during the week of July 10th, 
Thomas was in Manhattan for business, which was not out of the ordinary. This was something he did all the time. But when he didn't arrive home when his wife is expecting him, she got really worried and decided to call the hotel he was staying at. And let me just say right now, Margaret Mulcahy is a freaking icon. We'll be talking about her a couple times throughout this episode. Um, she's amazing. So Margaret called the hotel and asked if they would check Thomas's room just in case. And when they did, they saw that all of his clothes and things were still in the room and he hadn't checked out when he was supposed to. She decided to call the New York Police Department because um, she wanted to file a police report with them. And they told her to file a police report with her hometown, which is like, why he went missing in New York. Remember in Home Alone 2 when Mrs. McAllister tries to report Kevin missing with the NYPD and they kept transferring her to all of those different departments and they like wouldn't take her report and were not at all concerned about her missing child? I'm just, you know, maybe the NYPD needs a little extra training, okay? Maybe in the 90s, maybe just in the 90s. I'm sure they're doing great. I'm not, no hate. Moving on. <laughs> Margaret went to the Sudbury Police Department and told them what was going on and they didn't take the report immediately but told her to wait in the office. She said later that she was confused why they wanted her to sit around for a minute, but then eventually they did come to talk to her, and sadly, not long before police, or not long before Margaret had got to the police station, the Sudbury police got a call from the New Jersey police letting them know that they'd found Thomas's body. And this was how poor Margaret found out about her husband's death. Um, that makes my stomach hurt. I just, I can't even imagine. So, in the following weeks, um, police followed his business expense reports, credit card reports, and basically any tips that they could figure out about where Thomas was going and had been on his trips to Manhattan. Originally, the detectives focused on his professional life since that was his main reason for being in the city. They heard from everyone that he was a great guy, he was a hard worker and a really good dad. According to his kids, he was kind of the good cop when mom was the bad cop, so he was less likely to discipline them, which, you know, dads, man. Um, eventually, they learned that Thomas was also interested in men. And when he visited New York for work, he would stay for an extra day so that he could visit the piano bars that he loved. Margaret wasn't shocked by this information and had actually suspected for a while that he was bisexual because she found a matchbook from a gay bar in one of his suit coats. According to one of their daughters, this became an issue in Thomas and Margaret's marriage, although before Thomas died, the kids didn't know what was going on and sadly they blamed their mom for it because it seemed like she was the one who was always upset and they couldn't figure out why and obviously, like, parents don't need to tell their kids every single thing that's happening in their marriage, so... The kids probably were shocked when they found out that it seemed like Thomas was living two different lives. It's very important to understand that Thomas grew up in a strict Catholic household, and when he was in his teens and 20s, he was growing up in the 50s and 60s and would never have been able to be openly gay and truly who he was. We talked about how in the early 90s things were bad, but in the 50s and 60s, it was way worse. Police would raid gay bars and literally arrest people for kissing each other, and... Um, there wasn't really anywhere for the LGBTQ community to feel safe and comfortable. In Last Call, Elon Green says that for a lot of men, going out to these gay bars were them, was a chance for them to live a life, quote, they wanted but couldn't possibly have. Here was a whole generation of men, more or less, for whom it was difficult to be visibly gay, to be visibly whole. Margaret was, Margaret was very open with the detectives and met the New Jersey detectives to give them any and all info she had about Thomas. Eventually, detectives followed his credit card uh, receipts to a piano bar called the Townhouse Bar in Manhattan. The Townhouse was a predominantly gay bar, and it was upscale, and a lot of people who frequented there were, like, the business types. Lawyers, doctors, etc. They were all very well-off, very um, well-dressed, very well-spoken men. And they were able to find a witness who recognized Thomas from a picture that said he had a brief conversation with him the night he was last seen. According to this witness... 
Thomas was sitting at the bar having a drink, and the witness approached him and tried to strike up a conversation. And not that it matters, but Thomas was a very handsome guy, in my opinion. He was, like, the silver fox type. He aged very well, and he probably dressed nicely because he was a businessman. So this man was like, hello, yes, and wanted to strike up a conversation with him. But he saw that Thomas was politely uninterested because he was making eye contact with another man across the bar by the piano. This witness saw the Florida guys happening and was like, okay, gotcha, see you later, and excused himself. The witness went back to the bar after a while, and Thomas and the man were both gone. He was able to give a description. The man was about 5'10 with brown hair and thin, so basically he looked like half the men at the bar in New York. Um, This description was so vague that there wasn't really much to go on, but it was still helpful. This case is so interesting because it's right at the beginning of a lot of technological and forensic advances, and since they didn't get a great description of this man seen with Thomas, the detectives really had to go on the forensic evidence that they had. Um, I watched that episode of Mark of a Killer where they go into some really great details about the way they used forensic evidence in this case that were really interesting and very crime geeky if you're into that kind of thing, which, duh, you are because you're listening to this podcast. Anyways, we're in the very early 90s. DNA technology was very new. The internet was barely becoming mainstream, so things were being done very differently. In the trash bags that were found with Thomas's body, they found eight used rubber gloves and the box those gloves came in Um, and then also a keyhole saw and the packaging for that saw. There was a CVS price tag on the box of gloves, and they were able to figure out that it was a CVS from Staten Island. Um, So detectives called the CVS and found out that the trash bags were also purchased there. They figured out that the saw came from a hardware store in Staten Island that was basically in the same parking lot as the CVS. So the red flags were flying. They obviously had to look into this, unfortunately. There weren't CCTV cameras at either the CVS or the hardware store, so there wasn't really much else that could be done other than knowing it was purchased in Staten Island. Um, The trash bags were carefully searched for fingerprints, but they didn't find any, so that was another dead end. The New Jersey police also reached out to some other police departments in the area to see if there had been any similar murders, and there was nothing to be found. Unfortunately, at that point, they basically just had to wait and see if and when the killer would attack again. Almost a year later, on May 10th, 1993, a man was driving down a dirt road in a forest area of Whiting, New Jersey, and he saw what he thought was a deer carcass on the side of the road. As he got closer, he realized that he could see human fingers and quickly drove home to call the police. The Ocean County Sheriff's Office quickly arrived to search the wooded area, and they realized that what this man found was obviously a severed arm that was partially wrapped in a plastic bag. It looked like the bag had been torn open and dragged around, possibly by a raccoon, searching through the nearby trash cans. So good job to that raccoon. Shout out to that tiny detective for bringing this evidence into the public eye. Most of the detectives said that after investigating dozens of murder cases, this one was still the most shocking and horrific they'd ever seen. They searched the area and found six more trash bags with body parts, parts, each double bagged and double knotted. Some of the detectives had been at the scene where Thomas's body was found and immediately the alarm bells were going off because this was obviously connected. Just like with the first victim, this body had been drained and washed clean. However, this victim had been dismembered rather than disarticulated, meaning that the murderer cut through the bone, which would have been quicker than the original disarticulation method that we saw in the first case. Unlike the last crime scene, there weren't any other items um, or an ID with this body, but there were a couple of distinct tattoos that a crime scene investigator was able to take pictures of, and they took fingerprints as well. They took the prints and put them into APHIS, which is the Automated Fingerprint Identification System, which was still very new, and they unfortunately didn't find any prints that matched. The prints were sent to Philadelphia and the New York Police Departments and to the FBI. 
That same day, the New York PD got a call saying the prints had been matched. Yay for everyone working together across the different jurisdictions. That doesn't always happen, but in this case, everyone was playing nicely and helping each other out, which we love to see. The victim had an arrest record, so his prints were on file in one of these states, and the second victim's name was Anthony Marrero. He was 43 years old, Hispanic, and very handsome. He had dark brown hair, thick brows, and a really great mustache. Sadly, there isn't a lot known about Anthony. It seems that he had moved around a bit in the years before he was murdered, and he didn't always have contact with his family. It actually really made me sad because the police said that no one had reported him missing, and then even after his identity was made public, no one came forward to claim him, which just breaks my heart. The police record was mainly because of sex work. He had been arrested a couple of times. Um, there was a lot of sex work happening at the Port Authority bus, bus terminal in New York, so that's where detectives started and looked into who Anthony was. They were able to find people who knew Anthony and luckily were willing to talk to the detectives. One of Anthony's friends said that he'd known Anthony for a while and that he mainly worked the gay bars and found clients there. This same friend said that he ran into Anthony at Port Authority on May 9th and said that he was on his way to meet a client and that was the last time he saw him. Detectives were able to track down and interview some of his clients, but none of those turned up anything helpful. They also looked into some of the bars that he went to, but no one had seen him in the day he went missing or the days after, obviously. Eventually, they were able to track down his brother, Lewis. When the detectives showed up at Lewis's house, he seemed very embarrassed and didn't have much to say. He said that Anthony sometimes visited, but they weren't close, and it seemed like he wasn't shocked to hear that his brother had been murdered. Anthony's family knew what he did for work, and it seemed like they were ashamed of him and figured that his life would end badly, which is horrible and heartbreaking. Um, let's talk evidence. So the bag that had Anthony's head in it was a white Acme brand grocery bag that said President's Choice Made with Pride by Jerry H. and Bob H. Detectives called the Acme company to find out more info about what that meant, and the president of, president of the company said that it was basically a promotional tool. People who made each bag branded them with their name and initials. So because of that, which is a weird, insane coincidence, they were able to look at the stores uh, where those specifically branded bags were sent. There were a lot of cities on the list, and they were able to narrow it down to 11 possible locations, but the one location was very important, the CVS in Staten Island, New York. They checked with the store, and they had gotten a shipment of these bags three days before Anthony's body was found. This connected Thomas and Anthony's case without a doubt. Not that there had been much of a doubt before this, but they had to lock it down. Um, these bags were also checked for fingerprints, and yay, they found two fingerprints and a palm print on one of the garbage bags. Like I said earlier, this was before APHIS was fully set up and being used on a regular basis, so when they looked through the APHIS database, nothing came up. So they went and sent them to every state to run through their individual databases, but unfortunately, there were still no hits. Once again, they hit a dead end and had no other leads to follow. On July 31st, 1993, a man collecting bottles and cans at a rest stop in Haverstraw, New York, found a briefcase and a bag holding shoes, pants, a shirt, and a wallet with an ID of a man named Michael Sakara. This man had heard about the bodies that had been found in the last year and decided to take all this to, to the police. That same day, a hot dog vendor parked his truck on a scenic outlook point in a wooded area of Haverstraw, New York. This hot dog vendor had been to this spot regularly, so he noticed when there was a lot more garbage than usual in the metal garbage cans. The bag on the top of the pile had blood on it, so he quickly called the police. The first officer to arrive was skeptical because the hot dog vendor said he found a human head in the garbage can, and the officer was like, you think there's seriously a head in this barrel? Sadly, yes, there was. Haverstraw was a small town, and their officers didn't have the capacity to handle a case like this, so they called the Rockland County Medical Examiner and District Attorney. 
I know I've already said this, but seriously, it's so nice to hear a story where people are reaching out to other police departments and different jurisdictions for help in this case. Because it happens way too often. People, like, get this weird ego and they refuse to get outside help, and then things are handed, handled horribly, or things are missed, and cases go unsolved because they won't just play nice with others. But they quickly put out a bulletin to other nearby police departments, hoping to find info on similar cases. You, of course, know where this is going. There were seven garbage bags, double-bagged, double-knotted, just like the others. He had been dismembered, drained of blood, and washed, and he had, had suffered stab wounds to the torso. Michael Sequeira was 52 years old and was very smart. People who knew him in high school and people who knew him as an adult said that he was very put together and very confident. He was tall and described as regal in the way that he walked and talked and was a very dignified gentleman. Michael had been living in Manhattan at the time of his murder, and a few months earlier, he had been in a long-term relationship, but according to the doorman at his building, this man had moved out and Michael was now living alone. When police searched his apartment, they didn't find anything out of the ordinary. One of Michael's favorite piano bars was the Five Oaks, and he would go there often and stay all the way until last call, which was around 4 a.m. A woman named Lisa Hall was a bartender there, and she, had, she and Michael had become friends over the years. The way that she described him, he sounded like he was just the nicest guy. She said that he was like the social manager at the bar. He knew everybody and would introduce people to each other, set people up on dates, and make people get up and sing, which I love. That's like the fun person at the bar to meet. The night that Michael was last seen, he had been sitting by himself at the bar, and it was around 3 a.m. He'd been drinking, and it was close to last call. Lisa said that she saw a man walk up to the bar and sit right next to Michael. She assumed that they knew each other because the rest of the row of chairs was totally open, but this man sat right next to Michael and started talking to him. Michael introduced the man to Lisa, but she couldn't remember his name, just that it was something simple, like Mark or John, and said that he was a nurse at St. Vincent's, which, ding, 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 there's that medical knowledge they said the killer most likely had. Michael left with that man, and Lisa never saw her friend again. Luckily, she was able to give the police the detail about being a nurse and a great description. Lisa said he was a white man in his early 50s with long brown hair and medium build. Finally, they had something to go on. A composite sketch was done, and they sent it to all of the papers and news outlets, and it was everywhere. This was when they started calling him the last call killer because it seemed like he was preying on vulnerable people who were drunk toward the end of the night and getting them to leave with him. The fact that he had a common name and looked like every other guy just out for the evening, he was able to hide in plain sight and go unnoticed. This man was very smart, well-spoken, and seemed totally normal, which is sometimes the scariest monster because they don't look like a monster. After the third victim was found, the New York Gay and Lesbian Anti-Violence Group put up a reward for any info about the killer, but no one came forward. By August 4th, five different jurisdictions with more than 20 detectives formed a task force and were looking into any and all leads. They were going undercover at the gay bars trying to find this man, and it was actually really interesting to hear because the head honcho, who was basically organizing everyone, paired everyone with different people to avoid this, like, groupthink mentality and to make sure that there were as many ideas being looked into as possible. So, a New, a New Jersey cop would be paired with a New York cop. Someone who had worked on the Thomas Mulcahy case was paired with someone who was new to the situation. Again, we love to see everyone working together. As the task force was looking into any and all options, they were trying to find out if there were any other murders that could possibly be part of this case. They felt like these murders were way too specific and carefully planned. It just made sense that he'd probably killed before. So this is when they connected a cold case from May 5th, 1991. A maintenance worker in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania was emptying the trash bins at a rest stop on the Pennsylvania Turnpike. He started pulling the bags out of the trash cans and as he tried to lift one of them, he realized it was much heavier than it should be. He had never had an issue emptying the trash cans before, so he decided to see what was inside of the bag. He tore open the bag to find another bag. 
and another and another until he'd gone through eight layers of trash bags to finally see what was inside. Honestly, after covering this case, if I ever find a layered trash bag, I'm calling the police immediately. Add that to your true crime creep rulebook, like more than one bag, <laughs> call the cops because there's nothing good in there. It's not garbage. Can you tell I'm avoiding talking about the next part? It's upsetting. Okay, here we are. Um, this man had previously worked as an EMT, so he wasn't, like, sh probably shocked to find it where he found it, but he wasn't shocked seeing a dead body. He actually ended up taking the body to the morgue because he drove a truck that could hold the body and because also he was a badass. The police showed up and started investigating, and this body had not been dismembered, but was just put into the trash bag in the fetal position. There were multiple stab wounds to the torso, and he was drained of blood. Um... There's a detail here about mutilation that's really horrifying. Uh, I'm going to just explain it quickly. There was a body part that was missing from this body that was found in the victim's mouth. So, moving on. Uh, it took some time for the officers to identify this body because they weren't able to find an ID or any other clues left with him. This man was 5'4 and only weighed 100 pounds. They thought it was possible that he was a horse jockey because of his size, and there was a horse track just a mile from where his body was found. They checked with the track but all 40 of their jockeys were safe and accounted for. The police were able to get 28 fingerprints and three palm prints off of these garbage bags and put them into the state database, but they didn't have any matches. There were some tips that came in from people who suspected that the victim could be someone they knew, who had gone missing, and it makes me really sad that there were multiple people who believed this could have been their loved one. Um, none of those turned into solid leads, though. Eventually, they put a composite sketch of the victim on the side of the toll booths in the area and almost immediately got a call. Members of the 1st Troop Philadelphia City Cavalry, a National Guard unit, had recently had a retreat in the area and believed that this victim was one of their members. They were all on their way out to this retreat, but one man didn't show up, and a few, after, a few days after this tip came in, a trucker found a trash bin full of blue and pink argyle socks, a corduroy hat, boxers, a pair of Brooks Brothers slacks, a brown belt, a parking ticket from Philadelphia, traveler's checks, and an ID card that confirmed the membership of the 1st Troop. This confirmed that the dental records had already told them that this man was Peter Anderson. Peter Anderson was 54 years old and worked as a banker. He had a wife and two kids, and his wife and him had separated in 1990 after his wife found out that he was bisexual. When Peter was in high school, he was a member of many clubs, and he was on the school newspaper. He was extremely smart and got into Trinity College. Around the time he was attending Trinity, they were starting to get a reputation for, like, bad behavior, which was basically just college kids being college kids from what I read. But this school was was founded by the Presbyterian Church, so from what I understand, it was kind of a religious college, but not super strict. Peter was part of a fraternity, and his frat bros described their fraternity as similar to Animal House, so they were loud and rowdy frat bros, basically. <laughs> Peter fit in with the fraternity, but when they would have parties where there were a bunch of girls there, he would keep to himself and just study in his room. One of his friends in the fraternity said that he always liked Peter, Everyone always thought he was really cool and nice, and he always dressed like, quote, a dapper little person. Peter was also described as lonely and wanted to fit in, but didn't always fit in. No one would have suspected that he was gay because people at Trinity didn't, quote, admit to such yearnings, unquote. Uh, Peter eventually met a man named Anthony Hoyt, who he really connected with. They were both closeted, and like I talked about earlier, this was in, like, the late 50s, early 60s, when it wasn't safe for the LGBT community to be who they were. At this time, the U.S. State Department removed all gay and lesbian members, saying that they were, quote, a threat to national security. Which, what? Okay, not gonna rant, not gonna rant, I'm gonna move on. It was also illegal in New York for a man to even ask another man about sex, so cops would go undercover to gay bars and arrest people. Hi, how about you go worry about, like, actual crimes? So, luckily in the 1960s, that specific law was abolished. 
But at the time, Peter and Anthony were like, yowza, sparks are flying, but it could put them both in danger, and Anthony was in politics, so it could absolutely ruin his life and his career. They both went on to marry women, but in Elon Green's book, Anthony said that they had an amazing romance. He said, quote, if it had been today in today's society, we could have been partners. Okay, I wasn't going to rant, but let's just pause for one second. The more I learn about LGBTQ history, the more it breaks my heart and makes me upset. Um, and obviously things are not where they should be. We have a very long way to go, but while I was researching this case, it hit me that as someone who is a straight person, I have never had to hide who I love. I have never had to have a fear of holding hands in public or fear for my actual safety because of my sexuality. And that's just straight privilege that I guess I never really thought about. And I guess I wanted to bring that up because it might be something that you've also taken for granted. And this is something that can help you to recognize that there are things that we need to work on and things that you can do to be a better ally, if that makes sense. Also, if you're listening to this and you're part of the LGBTQ plus community, if you're a girl, gay, or they who has to deal with violence, criticism, or people just being plain nasty to you, please know this is a safe space. Please know that I love you. You're doing an amazing job. Okay? Last rant of the episode. I promise moving on. Okay. So, Peter. Peter Anderson spent most of his adult life married to a woman he did love and care about, um, and they had two kids together, but it was speculated that their friends, that Peter was gay, or speculated by their friends that Peter was gay, and they just kind of lived these two separate lives. Um, I'm sorry if you can hear birds chirping. There's a nest that's like right outside of the room that I record in, and I swear they wait until I press record to start doing their bird stuff. So if you can hear it, I'm sorry. Just pretend we're on a nature walk together. It's very soothing, it's very calming. Okay, <laughs> moving on. So Peter eventually joined the Philadelphia First Troop, like we talked about, and he was a staff sergeant in 1991. His friends in the troop described him as witty and intellectual and said that he was a small man but could, quote, drink like a field soldier, meaning he could get smashed one night and still be perfectly chipper the next morning. Uh, his friends described him as a functioning alcoholic, which is not great, and things seemed to get worse around the time that his sexuality was being questioned. His wife found out about his affairs with other men, and eventually they separated but stayed friendly. This was when things really started to go downhill for Peter, and he was extremely unhappy. He was burning through money like crazy and got arrested for drunk driving. The week of May 5th, 1991, Peter was traveling to New York for work, but promised his son that he'd be home Sunday so that they could go to a baseball game together. When he was in New York, he met up with his old friend Anthony, who he'd stayed in contact with over the years. They attended a fundraiser event together and then went to the townhouse bar, which unfortunately put Peter over the edge and he was extremely drunk. The townhouse had a reputation for being very generous with their liquor, uh, which is great, but not for someone who's an alcoholic. Um, so Peter was extremely drunk and the bartender politely asked them to take the party somewhere else. Peter suggested that they went back to Anthony's apartment, but Anthony had guests in town and Peter was very, very drunk. So he booked his friend a room at a nearby hotel and gently put him into a cab. When Peter got to the Waldorf Astoria, he was smashed and made the poor choice, to say the least, of pinching the receptionist's butt when he was checking in. The manager told him he was welcome to stay at the hotel, but, quote, the staff didn't come with the rooms. For whatever reason, he ended up not checking in and got a cab back to the townhouse bar. It's been speculated that he maybe just forgot that he got kicked out because he was so drunk. Unfortunately, this was the last time he was seen. There were no suspects. The fingerprints on the garbage bags didn't ever turn up a match, and they'd hit a wall. Peter's case went cold until the other three victims of the last call killer were found. There was a huge connection because the townhouse bar was the same place the first victim, Thomas Mulcahy, was last seen. Okay, just a quick recap roundup. 
Four victims were found, mutilated or dismembered, all with stab wounds to the abdomen, drained of blood, and cleaned. All of them were found inside garbage bags that had been double or triple bagged and tied with a double knot. All of them were found dumped in public spaces where they could be easily found. There were prints on bags from three of the crime scenes. All of these men were gay men, and three of them were last seen extremely drunk at bars. It's assumed that the killer is a medical professional, and he was described as being in his 40s, brown hair, medium build. All the bags, gloves, and a saw found at the crime scenes had been purchased in Staten Island. So at this point, the task force was starting to feel really confident. They had these four murders that were definitely all connected. They had multiple fingerprints. They finally had a good composite sketch. Everything was falling into place, and they genuinely believed that they'd be able to solve this case like in a few weeks because they had so much to go on. Two men actually came forward who had been panhandling outside the Five Oaks bar. Um, this is the bar that Michael was last seen. And they said that they saw Michael leave with a man who was about six feet tall, medium build with blonde or light brown hair, which was the same description that Lisa, the bartender, gave. They said it was clear that Michael was much more intoxicated than this other man, and they got into a sky blue car with New York plates and left. The task force subpoenaed St. Vincent's, New York, to get the records of anyone on the nursing staff named Mark or John. They also realized that there was a St. Vincent's in Staten Island, which is where all of that crap came from, remember? So they got the records from there, too. Also, I love this next detail because it's just such a weird detective thing to do. One of the detectives made his kids stuff envelopes with the composite sketch and took it to all of the employees at the at both hospitals. It's just like such an inappropriate thing to do that he probably was like, this is a great idea. I love it. I'm here for it. So good news. Because of that fun little family night activity, someone actually did come forward saying that they thought they knew who this was. Um, this might be a long shot, but if any of you listening had like parents who were in law enforcement or were detectives or things like that. I really, I want to know about that, what that was like growing up. Okay, moving on. <laughs> I'm sorry, left you on a cliffhanger there and then changed the subject. So someone came forward because they thought they knew who this sketch was. This is kind of confusing because in the last call book, um, they said that his name was Mark Holland, but in one of the other sources I used, they said his name was Mark Slayton. I feel like the book is probably correct, but either way, this man's name was Mark, and he was a nurse at St. Vincent's. When they looked further into him, they found out that he was openly gay and lived in the same neighborhood in Staten Island that all those serial killer supplies were purchased. He was also rumored to go to the popular gay bars, inclu including the townhouse. The detectives were like, hell yes, everyone, we're going to drinks tonight. We found our guy. We're ready to go. They brought him in. They started questioning him. They gathered as much information as possible and took his fingerprints. There was nothing incriminating in what he said, so they couldn't make an arrest, and he was just sent on his way while they waited for those fingerprints to get processed. While they were waiting, they also looked into the schedules of the 11 other Marks, it's a lot of Marks, that worked at St. Vincent's, trying to put together people's days off and match them with the days of the murders. They also tried to place Mark at these bars on the same day as the victims. He had no criminal record, and his friends and coworkers didn't have anything suspicious to say about him. Um, they took his photo to Lisa at the townhouse bar and asked if she recognized him, and she didn't. He had an alibi that checked out for all of the dates of the murders, and eventually, when the prints came back, they were not a match for the ones on the garbage bags. So Mark was cleared, and without any more leads to follow, the case fizzled out and went cold. Six years went by, and there were no updates and no new leads. So in 1999, Margaret Mulcahy, who was Thomas Mulcahy's badass wife, remember, she called the New Jersey police and was like, yo, what's going on with Thomas's case? What do you got? They were able to get some fresh eyes on the files and decided to take another look because it had been a while since they looked into it and forensic technology had significantly advanced in the last few years. 
A task force was again formed, and the investigation was back on. One of these fancy technologies had to do with being able to lift old fingerprints from different, more difficult surfaces, such as plastic bags, glass, things like that. Um, it's called vacuum metal deposition, or VMD, and it's a process where evidence goes into a chamber that works like a vacuum. They hang the bags in the VMD system, and the chamber sucks out all the air and creates a vacuum, uh, kind of like in space. It's very exciting. <laughs> they put a tiny amount of 24 karat gold and zinc into a dish at the bottom of the chamber, and then they heat it up. The gold vaporizes, and then the zinc turns into a gas that sticks to the gold, and if this works correctly, the mixture creates silver fingerprints that couldn't be found in more common fingerprinting ways. This was fascinating for me to learn about. Um, it was like such a science geeky thing. But the chapter in the book is called Gold Dust, which makes me think of the Stevie Nicks song called Gold Dust Woman, which is kind of about cocaine. But now we're going to say it's about a woman who's a forensic scientist that uses vacuum metal deposition. You know, that Stevie Nicks song about the female scientist? Anyways, okay, maybe that's only a joke that I get. Moving on. So this was a technology that wasn't being done everywhere, but the Royal Canadian Mounted Police in Canada did have the ability to do this, so the New Jersey police called in a favor, and in July of 2000, two detectives actually drove the evidence all the way to Canada. They said in the documentary that this was something that they don't normally do, but this case was so important to them and they'd been working on it for so long that they didn't want anything to happen to these bags, so they drove them up there themselves. Unfortunately, some of the bags hadn't been handled or stored properly, so those ones couldn't be tested. Um, since these all came from different jurisdictions, people were doing things differently, but the New Jersey evidence had been handled beautifully and they were able to get to work on those bags. When it was all said and done, they found 17 new prints on the bags from Thomas's case and they were able to compare to the prints found in Anthony's case all the prints they had matched. Further connecting the murders and proving that they were done by the same person, which was glaringly obvious from step one, but you have to have the physical evidence in order to take these things to court and get a good conviction. As we know from earlier, when the prints from Anthony's case were originally sent out, they didn't find any matches. However, it was 2001 now, baby, and APHIS was regularly being used. The prints were sent out to all 50 states, and Maine came back with a match, finally. The fingerprints matched a man named Richard Rogers, and the detectives took a deep dive into every single thing about this man. The reason the prints were on file was super sus. They were from a murder trial that he was involved in back in the 70s. The only reason they were able to get a match from these prints was because of the person back in the 70s who did a great job taking the prints and keeping them filed. Yes, queen or king. Detectives interviewed hundreds of people who had known Richard over the years, including one of his college roommates. This roommate's name was Dan, and he described him as very clean and neat, well-dressed, and mild-mannered. When Dan moved out, Richard got a new roommate named Frederick Spencer, who he became very close with. People described them always being together. They were besties attached at the hip, and I think there were at least whispers that maybe they had a sexual relationship. So when Richard murdered Frederick, people were pretty shocked. At trial, Richard said that it was self-defense. His story was that allegedly on April 29th, 1973, he got home and found Fred going through his drawers, and when he confronted him, Fred attacked him with a hammer, so in self-defense, Richard took the hammer from him and killed Fred. Here's my issue, though, okay? Self-defense, okay? After this happened, Richard didn't call the police. He waited until it was dark and wrapped Fred's body in a tent and dumped it on the side of the road in a wooded area. So that, to me, throws self-defense out the window. Like, why would you feel the need to go dump the body in the woods and not just explain what happened? When Fred's body was examined, they saw that he'd been hit in the back of the head with a hammer eight times and had a plastic bag over his head. Again, 
where did we go from self-defense to putting a bag over his head? Like, that just is overkill. Apparently, Richard didn't really have any wounds that looked like he'd been attacked first, so there's also that. Richard was obviously arrested. He was held without the option of bail until his trial, and six months later, in October of 1973, the trial began. Several witnesses spoke about Richard's good reputation, that he was calm and collected, and overall a good guy. The charges were eventually dropped from murder to manslaughter, and they said that Richard hitting Fred eight times in the head with a hammer had been done, quote, in passion under sudden provocation. Richard also calmly said that he hit him in the head with the hammer, but he was still struggling, so he put the bag over his head, which again, just my opinion, going from attacking someone in self-defense to making the choice to murder him. It, it just doesn't make sense. If there was even a fight beforehand, who knows? Um, the medical examiner said that the blows from the hammer had been bad enough to be fatal, so I doubt that Fred was really struggling that hard to try to attack Richard, that he would need to put a bag over his head, but that was his story. Um, oh, and let's not forget, the next idea was to wait until it was dark and dump the body on the side of the road instead of calling the cops. Personally, I think it sounds ridiculous, but the jury was like, yep, totally checks out. Uh, jury members later said that Richard lawyer, Richard's lawyer had tried to use, quote, a gay angle, possibly saying that Fred had made a sexual advance toward Richard, and this just pushed him over the edge to insanity, and he murdered him. Unfortunately, the records of this case has been sealed, so there's no way to know exactly what evidence was shown to the jury, but they deliberated for only three hours and found Richard not guilty. I think he should have at least been charged with manslaughter, but that's just my opinion. Either way, Richard went on to be a total nightmare of a person, so there's that. After getting away with his first murder, Richard went on to finish graduate school and get a job as a surgical nurse at Mount Sinai Hospital, where he was still working 20 years later. As a surgical nurse, uh, Richard would be very familiar with human anatomy and be able to disarticulate or dismember a body very easily, which means it lined up exactly with the crimes. They also looked into Richard's work schedule and found that he'd been off on the dates of each murder. Another clue falls into place. Then they went to the Five Oaks bar to talk to the bartender, Lisa, who again had been the person to give the description for the composite sketch. Lisa said over the years, detectives had... <laughs> detectives? I'm having such a hard time saying that word today. Lisa said that over the years, detectives had shown her dozens of photos and possible suspects. This time when they handed her a sheet full of photos, she immediately picked out Richard and was positive that that was the piece of crap who murdered her friend Thomas. The detectives were like, all right, three strikes are out, let's arrest this guy. Apparently there had been a plan to start surveillance of Richard because all the police offices involved didn't believe he had only committed the four murders. There were other murders they thought he had possibly committed, and they wanted to watch him and see if he would lead them to wherever he was committing these crimes. Because the detail that he put into the murders was not something that could just be accomplished anywhere. He had to have some kind of secret dungeon, or something. Unfortunately, before the surveillance could start, the NYPD threw a curveball and took Richard in for questioning the day surveillance was supposed to start. And from what I understand, there was a few different reasons behind this. There wasn't a really, like, solid reason given for why the NYPD kind of went rogue and was like, no, we're just going to arrest him right now. I think that with all the jurisdictions involved, they kind of, like, just went for it. And it seems like other jurisdictions maybe weren't as super happy about it. But they had the guy. They knew that they wanted to get this done. So everyone still continued to play nicely for the most part. So they didn't want to tip him off or freak him out. So they came up with a plan to get Richard to talk to them. And they showed up at the Mount Sinai Hospital on May 28th, 2001. They approached Richard and told him that they just needed to talk with him because he had possibly been a victim of credit card fraud. He was like, okay, sounds great, went to the police station. Once they had him alone, they spilled the tea and said that they were investigating four murders, 
and there was evidence that linked back to Staten Island where Richard lived. They also said that he knew he was the last person to be seen with Michael Sakara. The detective said at this point, his body language completely changed. When Richard first sat down, he had been calm and confident. He sat up straight with both knees on the, or both feet on the floor, hands resting on his knees. Once he was faced with all this information, he started sweating profusely. He crossed one leg and folded his arms, completely closing himself off. He almost immediately asked for a lawyer, and the detectives were able to hold him while they got a search warrant for his house. When they went to Richard's house, they found an insanely clean place. They show pictures of this house in the episode of Mark of a Killer, and everything is lined up perfectly. There is nothing out of place. It's freakishly clean. He had hundreds of VHS tapes that were all organized alphabetically and by genre. Um, the carpet was also, like, perfectly vacuumed in these visible rows that were meticulously done. Uh, they also found shopping bags and garbage bags, just like the ones used on the victims, and a bag full of sedatives that he'd stolen from the hospital that were most likely used to knock out his victims. The next thing they found was really weird and shocking to me. They said that they found a stack of Polaroid photos, which I assumed they were going to say were pictures of the victims. That's something that happens in cases a lot. Uh, but the pictures were of construction workers that Richard had taken photos of out of his living room win window. Like, these dudes were just on break, or whatever, with their shirts off. And Richard took photos of them, which is creepy by itself. But then he had taken a red sharpie and drew little lines on the photos that looked like stab wounds. So, yikes. They also found a Bible with passages highlighted about murders and beheadings. Uh, not good. However, they didn't find any other physical evidence that could link him to the murders, which I think means he had to have had some kind of creepy murder clubhouse like in the show You on Netflix. Again, yikes. In 2003, Michael was charged with the murders of Thomas Mulcahy and Anthony Marrero. They weren't able to bring any other charges against him because those two were the only cases where they physically had his fingerprints, and they still couldn't find any other physical evidence or a crime scene. In October of 2005, Richard was offered a plea deal that would get him off in 30 years with eligibility for parole after 15 years, which is ridiculous and such a light sentence for what he did, but they were trying to get him to confess to the crimes and tell them where the crime scenes were, if he had more victims, why he did this, but he didn't take the plea, and most likely it's because he thought that he would just get acquitted like he did in Fred's murder from the 70s. There was also another incident in 1988 where he attacked and drugged a man, but for some miracle reason he let this guy go and this guy went to the police. Richard was arrested, but was given a non-jury trial and was quickly acquitted. So for Richard, he'd been able to slip through the cracks multiple times before. Uh, so at this point, he probably was confident, confident enough that he would just do it again. And in fact, in the time before he was arrested, he would go out to the gay bars and he once told the date, quote, you should be careful who you're with because they're looking for a serial killer. We hate to see it. I hate these cocky douchebags. I mean, bad enough to be a cocky douchebag, but to be a murderer and to be like, yeah, scary. Like, it's so yucky Ted Bundy vibes. Okay, moving on. You know, officially, that they would say in a crime documentary, yucky Ted Bundy vibes. <laughs> uh, she's such a professional. Okay. In the trial began in October of 2006, and they showed the jury photos and evidence, and although they couldn't prosecute Richard for the murders of Peter and Michael, because again, there was only the circumstantial evidence, the judge still allowed them to tell the jury about those cases, and family and friends of all of the victims testified. Richard didn't say a word, he didn't testify on his own behalf, he just sat there, probably because that worked really well and put things into his favor the first time he'd been on a uh, trial for murder, so luckily, the jury didn't think Richard's attorney presented enough for reasonable doubt, and after only four hours of deliberation, the jury found Richard Rogers guilty on two counts of murder, and he was given two life sentences plus ten years for hindering apprehension.
He would be eligible for parole after 60 years, but he was 55 when he was sentenced, so that's not going to happen, thankfully. During sentencing, Richard sat emotionless, and to this day, he's refused interviews. He has never given any insight to why he murdered, where he did these murders, or how many victims, etc. He's just a nightmare of a person, and we're going to end on a wonderful quote here from the judge in this case. Glaring at Richard, he said, quote, It's the purpose of this sentence to do everything in my power to assure society that you never walk free again and that you die in some hole in some prison without ever having freedom again. We're done. Get him out of here. Yes, King, go off. Tell him what's what. I love that so much. Um, okay, we've reached the end of this episode. I hope that you liked it and it made you think and maybe thought about things you had never thought about before. I mean the parts about, like, being kind to other people, not the parts about scary murders. Okay. Um, I can't believe that this story isn't talked about more and that I have never heard of this. I hope that you get a chance to read or listen to Elon Green's book, Last Call. It was so good and went into way more detail and told the story way better than I ever could. So check it out. Um, thank you for listening. Don't forget to rate and review and subscribe. And if you like this podcast, I would really love it if you tell all of your creepy crime creep friends too. Okay, thanks. Okay, bye. Also, hi, one last thing. I'm sorry if you can hear ducks quacking in that last little ending piece. The birds finally stopped chirping, but then this family of ducks showed up to bully me. So I'm sorry if we have a lot of weird nature sounds in the background of this episode. I'm doing my best here.